this series. We're going to look at Jesus as the king of God's kingdom through Matthew's gospel. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the course of this term. And it's going to be very important for us to see who this king is in uh, the way that Matthew opens his presentation today. So it's exciting. Uh, we're going to, uh, to dive into some of the details that are here. And I'm going to pray that God would help us. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious and good God. Father, when we were still far away from you, you came close to us and made us your sons and daughters through Jesus' death and resurrection. Father, we pray today that we might understand him better. By your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds. Soften us, challenge and rebuke us, Father, so that we might know and love your son better. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I want you to, to, uh, to play a little game with me. I want you to see if you can connect up these three movies. So first movie, Rogue One, fantastic. Uh, Batman Begins and Monsters University. If you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, gee, the connection is I'm glad I haven't seen any of them. Well done, that's fine. No problems. But there, there may be a connection here. Has anyone got any idea what the connection may be? My Facebook post gave it away. Tash, why don't you use that extracurricular information and tell us what the link might be? Very good. Backstories. Okay, so if you liked episode four of Star Wars, uh, you can go and see Rogue One and find the background. Uh, if you like Batman, you can watch Batman Begins. If you were hanging to find out the history and background of Monsters, Inc., uh, you can go and see Monsters University and find out the backstory. There's information that we know, and then, then you go, oh, no, no, I'll understand it better if I go back and look behind. And I guess the point of this is to say Jesus has a backstory. Jesus has a backstory. He doesn't just appear in Nazareth and everyone goes, oh, cool, saviour of the world, no problems. It's, it's not how it worked in God's plan. And so what we want to do carefully today is to think through Jesus's backstory. See, because God has been working in history. In fact, all history is his story. And he works through people, through places, through promises, and through nations. And what we see when we read the Bible with our eyes open is that all of that work of God under his sovereign hand is pointing towards the one who was to come, Jesus, the son of David. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to dive in and try and orientate ourselves to the way Matthew opens his account of Jesus' life. We need to think a little bit about who received this story. So in the past, Matthew's gospel, his account of Jesus' life, didn't come wrapped in a book like this. You know this, don't you? The first recipients didn't get a whole Bible. They didn't get an Old Testament and a New Testament and three other Gospels. That, that's not how it worked. And so they got Matthew. And we need to think about those who received this story. And it's a bit like the, the, the old quote that says, the past is like another country. They do things differently there. Right? And it's very important for us to see the past as another country. We need to slow down and acknowledge something different was happening for the people who were the first recipients of this word. So when you go to another country, well, what do you notice? Uh, if, if you were to go to somewhere like Japan, you might notice that they have a different culture. When you see chopsticks, you're not anticipating, uh, you know, 500-gram steak to come out, are you? Right? 
although they have lovely beef over there as well, but you're anticipating something's different. You, you look at the imp implements and you see there's a different culture. You'll note that there are different names. And in other places, people treasure names differently. In other times, they have as well. So I don't know if you've got a culture where you know what your name means and why you're called what you're called, but you know, for someone who's called Bob, it just describes what they look like in the pool, right? It, it's not really telling us very much about their past or their heritage. And so for us, many of us anyway, names aren't as important. But for those who received Matthew's gospel, they were very important. And then there's numbers. Numbers are strange things. Uh, you, you, you know, we get excited in, in uh, cricket when someone scores a 50 or a 100. But if they score 49 runs, it's like they fell short. What a... And that's weird, isn't it? Because 49 runs are still pretty good, isn't it? And so in that small part of our world, numbers matter, but almost nowhere else. We don't know any phone numbers anymore, do we? I just say who I want to call, and my phone calls them. It's fantastic. N numbers we don't treasure. But when I went to India, uh, they, I went to a Hindu wedding over there, and my mate went, because they're into numerology, and so what that meant was they had to work out the most auspicious time for them to get married. Turned out, when you added the numbers in their letters, their names together and whatever else they did, and the days of the week, it, it was 5.30 a.m. Legitimately. And so we were there at 5.30 a.m. in India having a wedding because numbers matter. So in different cultures, different things pop up. Uh, some people will revere the past much more than us. Most of us can't remember what we were doing last week. We are very now people. Okay? But for other cultures, treasuring the past really matters. For others, it'll be looking to the future. And so it'll be full of anticipation of stories that have been sown in that says the future will look like this. Again, our timeline has just collapsed down and we live in the second that we're in right now. And so their culture, the culture of these recipients, was shaped in these ways. And if we think about them a little bit more, here's some important points in those spaces that would orientate us to what they're like. The first thing to know is that the recipients of Matthew's gospel were more than likely Jewish. The audience was Jewish. How do we know this? Well, if I tell you that it's said in the prophet Isaiah that there was going to be a child who was born and that prophecy was fulfilled, you'd kind of go, okay. Unless you'd spent 700 years reading the prophecies of Isaiah with the expectation and hope that they might come true. And so it's likely, because of the way Matthew writes, he assumes people get this world. And so we think that they're probably Jewish. Secondly, we see a background here that says Abraham is important. Why is Abraham important? God made three very important promises to Abraham. Does anyone remember what they were? Land, offspring, people, yep. Blessing, land, offspring, blessing. Well done, team. Uh, so God said to Abraham, I am going to give you a land. Even though you're wandering around at the moment, I'm going to give you this land. And then I'm going to make you into a great nation. That's the people part. And then you, through these people, are going to be a blessing to the whole world. Land, offspring, blessing. Okay? And, and so... Abraham was absolutely central. And what that meant was the people of God, Israel, were at the focus of God's plan. And so if you were an Israelite, you would be thinking, man, God is focused on us through the promises to Abraham. The only problem is 
that that promised land, right at the time that Matthew was writing, was occupied. There were foreign soldiers in Israel. It was occupied by the, by the Romans. And so all of those hopes, all of that expectation were sort of under a, a cloud of oppression from a foreign army. We spoke a little bit about prophecy. My picture up there is the, um, the TV guide, uh, which is about as far ahead as we look, right? What's on tonight in 15 minutes' time? But for them, they had a totally different horizon. They had heard the promises of God, and they spent their time informed by these, looking forward to a future that God had assured them of. A lot of those prophecies came together around David, King David. You've heard of David? The, the pinnacle king, uh, arguably, in the, in the history of Israel. And God had said to David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. And so if you're an Israelite and you've got a foreign army there, what are you looking forward to? Where is my promised king? Where is the descendant of David? Where's the son of David? And that had sort of been, become a, a shorthand where they spoke about the anointed one. And the anointed one, see, because when you become king, you you don't get a scepter like we do with our queen or or even necessarily a crown. What they got was oil of anointing on their head. And so to be anointed was to be made the king. And so they were looking for this person called the Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. And so there's this expectation, where is the Messiah, the son of David? They're looking forward to him. There's one more piece of backstory that we need to know. God had given the promised land to the people of Israel with uh, a condition, essentially. He said, you can have this promised land so long as you're obedient to me and worship me only. And for a while they did, and then for an extended period they didn't. And God kept on sending them prophet after prophet to say, guys, you've got to get with God. You need to turn away from these idols, otherwise you'll lose the promised land. And eventually God drew up his favour back to himself, and he said, that's enough. I've told you enough. You will now have to leave the promised land and go into exile. So I've got the eject button there. They got ejected out of the land. And that is a very important moment for the people of Israel because they lost their heritage. They'd come back by the time that Matthew's writing, and they'd been in the land for some centuries, but it hadn't returned to its former glory. And so exile is really key to understanding what's happening here in Matthew. So with all of that background, all of these threads, come with me to Matthew's Gospel, to chapter 1 and verse 1. Have a listen. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Can you see how he couldn't have made a more loaded opening sentence? If you're Jewish, right? The rest of you are just sitting here going, oh yeah, cool, right. Just said a whole bunch of names for Jesus. That's not very exciting. But if you're Jewish, right? If you're Jewish, then the response is a little bit more like this. No way, right? And then as if to go, yes, good emotion, everybody. Let me tell you how awesome this is. Let me tell you lots of names. And and so he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Hum along with the tune. Uh, Judah was the father of, uh, uh, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. See, now for us, we're just going, oh my goodness, it would have been a nightmarish reading for joy, right? And if she'd done it, which I'm sure she could have, we would have given her a round of applause and gone, that was just awesome, right? But here's the thing, for Jewish people, these names were familiar. 
they, they weren't unusual. They weren't uh, like, gee, I've never heard uh, nation before. Right? They would have been going, nation. They would have known nation, and they would have known the hierarchy and the order. And so these names come together to form a story that they were familiar with already. And so the outcome is this in verse 17. Have a look what it says. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And you go, Wow, don't you? It's very strange. We don't make any sense of this. What is going on? Well, well, let's have a look at it. Here's my Bible timeline. If you haven't seen this before, this is my attempt to pull the story of the Bible together into pictures. We go from creation here in Genesis chapter 1, and there's the fall, Noah, Abraham, Egypt, Ten Commandments, wandering in the desert, the promised land, the kings, including David and Solomon, the exile, and then the return from exile, which is at the end of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have the birth of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. We have the letters to the early church. We look forward to Jesus' return and judgment and to the new creation. That's our overview of the Bible. Okay, And when we do our Bible readings, you might have noticed it's on the bottom of the screen, and there's a little blue box that comes in. When that stops, it'll show you where the reading fits into that timeline. So that'll, that'll help you orientate yourself. But what's Matthew been saying here? Well, he says, Abraham. And then he says, David. And then he says, exile. And then he says, Jesus. These are the major tentpoles in the story of the people of God. And and what he's saying here, as he then says, there was 14 generations between Abraham and David. And 14 generations between David and the exile. And then 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. What he's saying is... Jesus is the logical next step in God's plan to complete his picture for what he is on about in the world. And the symmetry matters, not to you. But it's beautiful if you're Jewish, right? And what about this number 14? It's very strange, isn't it? Can anyone think of any really famous 14s in the Bible? Don't try too hard. There aren't any. 14s aren't a number that the Bible is excited about. There is a number that the Bible's excited about. Does anyone know what that is? Seven, absolutely. Okay. So, does anyone know what three lots of 14 are? Sorry? 42. 42. 42, which is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Is that right? Some Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy people there. Fantastic. No, not what he's doing. I honestly don't know why 14 is so precious to him. There's some stuff about... Uh, the name of King David, which I'll tell the people who come to row together about this afternoon. Little hint, you're excited now, aren't you? Come along, it'll be great. But, but here's the thing, 42, does anyone know their seven times table? How many sevens are there in 42? Six, great, okay, there are six. Do you remember when Jesus is talking to, um, uh, to uh, I think it's to Peter, and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Shall I forgive him up to seven times seven? Now, so, so, and then Jesus comes back and says, no, 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 but 77 times 7, right? What Peter had said when he said 7 times 7 is not because 49 is a magical number of times to forgive somebody. He was picking a perfect number and joining it to a perfect number. Should I, should I forgive him 49 times, right? It's a magical number, okay? So here's the thing. Do we know any sixes in the Bible? 
Okay, 666, very good. Put that one to the side, not the one I'm looking for, but well done. That's good. Think about Genesis. Six days for creation, right? And what does God do on the seventh day? He rests. Why? Because all of his work has been completed. Here's the only speculation I can get from this, okay? Speculation. Six times seven gets me to Jesus. Is Jesus the completion of God's plan? He's the seventh set of sevens. Do you see this? That's the best I've got for you. Otherwise, you Google it and you'll have a ball. I promise you. Anyway, here's what matters to Matthew. Matthew wants to tell us that David is key. David is key because he was the one to whom the promise was made. David is key. Secondly, it's a pretty selective genealogy. He doesn't include everyone. He excludes some people. And you look at it and you go, is it really 14 generations? And if you get really picky like I just went to Ancestry.com and looked at my thing and I've got 14, don't do that. He's, he's not trying to create the exact genealogy. He's doing something artistic. Okay? Now that's weird for us because we want it to all be exactly right. But you know what that says more about? That says more about us than about Matthew's intention in putting it together. Are you with me? Remembering that he comes from a different time and a different place. So here's what I think is happening for Matthew. I think he just likes the symmetry. Isn't it really cool? Abraham's really important, and so is David. And they're all leading to this disappointment in the exile, but that wasn't the last word. Jesus is God's last word. It's all symmetrical. How brilliant is God's plan? I think that's what he's trying to say. So when you go home and someone says to you, What's 42? You can say it's the answer to Jesus being the Lord of God's plan. Isn't that great? Fantastic. So why is it called Jesus? How do we get to Jesus? I don't find a Jesus in the Old Testament. So when it says his name is Jesus, is that just like dropped from God? He could have been Bob. No, that's not the case. I want to show you why. And to do so again, we're going to go back in our timeline to when they were going into the promised land. Do you remember Moses brought them, uh, brought them all the way to the edge of the promised land and then he sent spies in to check out the promised land. Do you remember this? If you don't know, it's all there in the Bible. Go digging. It's great. He sent the spies in to check out the promised land. And some of the spies he sent in were very unfaithful. In fact, 10 of the 12 were unfaithful. Two only brought back a good report of the land. Caleb and Joshua. Here's an interesting note, though. Have a look at this. In Numbers 13, it says, These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. He gave the name Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. So before, his name was Hoshea, and Moses changed his name to Joshua. Why, what, what, what's going on there? Well, here's a little background for you. I don't ever do original languages in my sermon, so this is as rare as the giant panda. But, uh, but here we have Hoshea. This is in Hebrew. Does anyone know which way Hebrew reads? It reads the, that's right, the opposite direction. So this is the H here for Hoshea. Hoshea, like going this way here. Hoshea means salvation. Brilliant, right? But Moses changes his name and changes his name to Joshua. He just adds this little, this little, uh, little uh, Hebrew uh, letter here. And it's actually one of the letters of God's name. Do you remember Abram became Abraham? Does anyone remember this? Abram became Abraham. The H in Abraham's name came from God's name. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh is God's name. And God gave him one of the letters of his name and he became Abraham with God's letter in the middle of it. I think Moses 
took the Y from Yahweh and put it at the front of Hoshea's name here. And so his name becomes the Lord saves. The Lord saves. That's his name. Now, if that's helpful, now we have a Joshua. But Jesus' name isn't Joshua, is it? Until you put his name into Greek, which reads the other way, by the way, guys, just so everyone's very excited. And in Greek, when we translate that into English, Jesus becomes Jesus, and therefore, somewhat incredibly, we're going to see that Joshua is the same as Jesus. It's just gone through a number of translations. Okay, And so uh, it says in uh, Matthew 1.21, she'll give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you read it yourself, you could also read, if you're reading it in Hebrew, you could read, you'll give him the name Joshua because he will save his people from their sins. Now, am I blowing your mind here? Here's the point. Jesus is a Joshua. Jesus is a Joshua. The name is no mistake. The Lord will save, but this new Joshua will save them even more than the first one. The first one brought them into the promised land. He will take us into God's promised land. He will do so by taking us through not the River Jordan, but through the rivers of baptism. Jesus will be the new Joshua who will save his people from their sins. Now, I want to show you something else in this genealogy so that we understand a little bit more about what's going on here. If you have a look with me at verse 3, we pick it up there. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, this is very interesting. I'm sure you're very interested. Why, does the, why are there women mentioned in the genealogy? Normally, you wouldn't do this. Why are these women mentioned? Well, I want to have a look at all four of them for a second. First is Tamar, and the second one is Rahab. The third one is Ruth, and the fourth one is Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Why, why are they here? Well, I want to suggest to you for two reasons. Tamar is a woman of scandal. Rahab is a foreigner. She's not actually an Israelite. And she's, what's her, what's her job, day job? She was a prostitute before she became part of the genealogy of Jesus. That's wild, isn't it? She was a prostitute. Ruth was a foreigner. Bathsheba is caught up in the scandal with David. And remember, she's Uriah's wife. Does anyone know anything about Uriah? Uriah the Hittite. He was a foreigner. And so what we're seeing here is that we have scandal and foreignness part of the story of Jesus. Why? Well, the first thing is because God's focus through Abraham was not just to bring his promise to Israel. He was going to bring it to all the nations. And so as we see these foreigners in the line of Jesus, we're reminded that God's promises will go beyond Israel. Secondly, we'll see God's grace. You see, there's all sorts of terrible stories here. Tamar, if you look it up, is an appalling story. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba's involved in adultery. There is scandal in the history of Jesus. 
but they're included because they're washed clean by the grace, by the forgiveness of our great God. And thirdly, they point to us about faith. You see, Tamar is commended as being more faithful than those around her. Rahab is commended for her faith. Ruth is commended for her faith. And even we assume Bathsheba is for trusting God in the midst of her distress. These women point us to the way, ultimately, that we will be included in the story of Jesus as Gentiles through grace by faith. But there's one more reason. I think it actually sets us up for this lady called Mary. Do you know that Mary's scandalous? We don't really think that, do we? But, but here's the story. We'll, we'll go back to the Christmas story, right? His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. It was an absolute scandal for this young woman to be pregnant before she was married. And so here we are. Jesus' mother is a woman of scandal. Are you with me? And so what this sets up, God, of course, speaks to Joseph. And he tells him not to pull the trigger on getting rid of her. And in fact, what we see, God is doing something extraordinary in the midst of what looks like a disaster. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 700 years earlier, God had promised that there would be a virgin who would give birth to one who would be God with us. And so this scandalous woman, this scandalous woman actually is part of a lineage of scandalous women who are included in the life of Jesus. Shows there is precedent and shows that God is at work in history and prophecy. How beautiful is the inclusion of these women in the account of the line of Jesus. But if Jesus means that he will save us from our sins, who needs a Jesus? Who really needs a Jesus? I was at a wedding the other day, and they mentioned that uh, this bloke, you know, you know when they do the, um, the presentation up the front, you know, this is how to tuck your seatbelt in and all that sort of stuff. Does anyone pay attention to that? Well done. Okay, good. Okay, I, I put my head down. I kind of figure. Anyway, what, what this guy said was he, he had a bag on his lap and his mate said, he was fly, flying with him, said, aren't you going to put that up into the overhead locker? He said, no. He said, why aren't you going to put it into the overhead locker? Eventually, he pushed him really hard and he said, no, no, I'm not putting it up in the overhead locker. He said, well, what's in there? Well, I've got my passport, a change of undies and various other bits and pieces in here. So why is it on your lap? Why won't you put it up well, because if the plane crashes, it'll be very inconvenient to get home, and I'd like to have my stuff with me. And um, the, the mate, he said, are you serious? He said, no, deadly serious. They won't come put it up in the, uh, in the overhead locker. Basically, the safety advice was relevant for him because he wasn't going to die in the plane crash, right? If everyone else was going to die, he was going to walk away and he'd have a bag so he could get home perfectly fine, right? How extraordinary. Real story. A little bag on his lap, okay? Now, what he thought was that the safety briefing was irrelevant. He was going to live... And I think this is the same as us when it comes to sin. We don't need it. Who needs a saviour? I'm doing just fine. I'm much better than the worst person I know. We, we don't measure ourselves against the best person we, do, we know, do we? It's not like we wander around going, gee, I'm at least uh, five or six years away being as holy as my most holy friend. Who has that thought? No, I'm heaps better than all those scumbags. That, well, don't say that in church, right? 
And so here's the thing. I actually think the people of Israel weren't like us. They weren't like us. They weren't shameless sinners. They weren't unafraid of their sin. They were conscious of it. God had given them commands. God had given them sacrifices when they fell short of his holy standard, and they fell short repeatedly. When Matthew writes here and says, he will save them from their sins, the people of Israel would have gone, I want one of those. Give me a Jesus. And so I want to say to us today, church, that you and I need to stop trying. You are never going to be good enough for God, not by working hard. Our sin-soiled hands will never be clean by our own devices. I did the mowing yesterday and got some oil and stuff on If you rub your hands to try and make them clean, right, just keep rubbing them together. Do you know what you do? You rub it in deeper, right? It's not coming off. Oily, dirty hands don't get clean by rubbing them together. And guys, that's the equivalent of us trying to cleanse our souls ourselves. We need outside help. We need God to come and save us, God to come and cleanse us. And I want to tell you, give up trying to be clean yourself. Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. How will he do that? He'll do it through the cross. He'll die and pay the price we can't pay. He'll be raised to life again to give us a life we couldn't earn. And so I want to say to you today, if you're not yet a Christian, if you haven't asked Jesus to forgive you, today is a great day. I'm all in, Jesus. My flimsy paper plane of holiness has crashed into the water for the last time. I need your help. Today is a great day to get saved. And I want to say to the rest of you who have already said to Jesus, game over, you've got me. Wouldn't it be good to tell someone else? Stop rubbing your filthy hands together. Find cleansing and forgiveness from Jesus. We can't keep that to ourselves, can we? To be apprentices to Jesus. Apprentices know that they are saved by grace. We are people who found Jesus, our Jesus, because he has saved us from our sins. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good and gracious God. Incredibly, you didn't just drop Jesus down. Through history, through nations, through people, through promises, You set us up to see Jesus as the fulfillment of your plan. And Father, I pray that we might take hold of him today. We might treasure him and rejoice in him. And we might love that we are saved by grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.